It has long been the custom of hacky comedians to blame everything they dislike about the youths of today on their receiving participation awards when they were young. Funnily enough, this sidesteps the fact that the decision to give participation awards actually resides uh, in those several decades older than the children who receive them. But it seems that everything that is wrong with the world today, with children and young adults, is basically blamed on the fact that they were recognised for participating and not solely winning or placing second. But in the work of my guest today, participation takes on a whole nother tone. Indeed, it is not something to be derided at all. Participation is central to the life of a Christian disciple. He looks at the letters of Paul in particular, to see the way that participation is central to Paul's understanding of theology, spirituality, and mission. So far from being an object of scorn, to participate in Christ for the Christian may just be the whole game. My guest today is Michael J. Gorman. Michael holds the Raymond E. Brown Chair in Biblical Studies and Theology at St. Mary's Seminary and University in Baltimore, Maryland. He is the author of numerous books, including The Death of the Messiah and the Birth of the New Covenant, Reading Revelation Responsibly, Reading Paul, Becoming the Gospel, Paul, Participation and Mission, and the book we are discussing today, Participating in Christ, Exploration in Paul's Theology and Spirituality, out now with Baker Academic. Please welcome back a multi-time guest, Michael Gorman. Also, really quickly, this interview was actually recorded quite some time ago, so there will be absolutely no reference to the current COVID crisis. Enjoy. Michael Gorman, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Glad to be here, Liam. Thank you very much for the invitation. This is uh, now your third time with us, uh, and we're back to talking about Paul. We're going to talk about your new book, Participating in Christ, Exploration in Paul's Theology and Spirituality, out with Baker Academic. Uh, so I guess the, the first question I'll ask is, you know, you've explored participation in Paul uh, a little while now. You've, you know, becoming the gospel, um, Cruciformity, you know, a few other times you've, you've, you've touched in on Paul and this and this idea. Where does this book sit uh, in relation to those other books? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, I think it does two things. One is it 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 brings together and synthesizes some of those themes that have emerged in my work. Maybe it does three things. So it synthesizes some of those things, and I. I lay out that synthesis in the first chapter and 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 then build on that uh, throughout the book. But it also permits me to go into fairly significant depth on a couple of key passages and in some cases key letters in, in Paul's writing. Um, I've I've been asked on many occasions to write full-length commentaries. And what I find is for me, I've written some short commentaries, probably about 15 um, relatively short commentaries on, on Paul and John uh, that get published in study Bibles and in my own books and so forth. But I, I've, I've found that as I, I'm more of an essayist who likes to go in in great depth into one mm. particular 
passage and not have to feel the responsibility to say everything about everything or something about everything. So this book has allowed me to do that, to kind of write in-depth commentaries on some very key passages. And then the third thing it, I think that this book has allowed me to do is to take um, my um, reputation for uh, focusing on the cross and expand that to focus more on the resurrection without leaving the cross in, in the dust, so to speak. So um, that that has been an important thing for me over the last probably seven or eight years. But this book is the my attempt to make it clear how important I think the resurrection is. Mm, and that definitely comes through, and I think we'll, we'll touch on that a bit uh, later. But in that first chapter alone is well worth the book. We, I think, have 13 um thesis statements, or I can't remember That's exactly right. number, 13, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. which just explore how this unfolds through uh, the cross, through the resurrection, through mission, uh, and it's a really good starting point. Um, mm. And it's not only exactly synthesizing, but also bringing out some new things that are going to get explored throughout the book. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's not just synthesizing, you're right. Mm. Uh, I thought to warm up, uh, I would ask, I would kind of throw to you two kind of well-worn, churchy statements, Christianese uh uh, phrases, and I want to know to what extent they reflect or depart from Paul's understanding of participation. Okay. Uh, so the first one is, you know, a, a refrain people might have heard often in communion, uh, which is, you know, receive what you are, become what you receive. That kind of words right at the end of the communion liturgy as people come to take uh, from the bread and wine. So how does that either reflect or depart from from what Paul would say about participation and yeah. union? Yeah, I, I think there's some truth to that from Paul's point of view. I, I guess um, one of the things that I as an interpreter and many Protestant interpreters do is probably spend less time thinking about Paul in the Eucharist than we should. Hmm. So I think I think Paul would be glad to make koinonia with Christ or communion with Christ explicitly related to uh, the Eucharist, to communion. And it's been Roman Catholic interpreters who have helped me in recent years see the importance of that. So I want to affirm that that Paul would be on board with that to a degree. To an, In another way, though, it, it strikes me as being a little less personal than Paul would be. The what concerns me um, mm-hmm. a little bit. So for Paul, the what is a who. Hmm. Receive and I think, you know, good communion theology, Eucharistic theology would say that as well. You're not just receiving the elements, you're receiving Christ and, and so forth. But I think Paul would be very firm on saying, you know, it's, it's Christ in us and us in Christ or the spirit in us and us in the spirit that makes this life um, a reality. So, um, yeah, I think Paul would want to discuss and, and nuance it a bit. Mm, that's great. Uh, so the, the second uh, statement is that um, we are to be the hands and feet of Christ in the world. There's obviously various variations of that, you know, yeah, right. Jesus' hands in the world or, you know, we need to be the hands and feet. You know, how does that, what would Paul say if he was sitting in a church and, and, and someone you know, offered that or a church meeting? Yeah, yeah. Part of that, of course, goes back to Teresa of Avila. And uh, in my, my Pauline theology seminar this uh, semester, we used her prayer one day when we were doing some readings that were relevant to First um, Corinthians 12. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think Paul would be, again, receptive to that kind of language, but also would want to nuance it a little bit. And I think his concern there might be 
there's perhaps a little bit more emphasis on us than Paul would be comfortable with. And again, maybe just to emphasize the hands and feet of Christ mm. uh, and, and that it's Christ who is acting in the world. But what I like about it is I think that many Christians think that the body of Christ imagery is just a metaphor. And this puts real, no pun intended, feet on it, so <laughs> to speak. And I think Paul would be very comfortable with that and want us to, to take that, that very seriously. It's not just a metaphor. Um, this is how Christ is present in the world, by the, by the activity of the Spirit within real communities of, of disciples. Mm. Oh, thank you for that. Uh, so you show that for Paul, the cross is a revelatory event, mm. uh, shining light on the big questions. It's, it's a Christophany it's revealing about Christ. Uh, it's a theophany. It reveals about God. It's a ecclesiophany, uh, revealing about the church, and a uh, anthropophany. I probably said that one wrong. <laughs> uh, but revealing what it means to be human. So it makes me think that uh, Paul's claim that uh, I intend to know nothing but Christ and him crucified is actually a rather uh, audacious claim. It's rather a large field of knowledge, it's really. It's pretty comprehensive. Really kind of a you know, academic subfield. It's, it's, I want to know everything uh, yeah, in that little yeah. statement. So talk to us a bit about, you know, I guess the cross as this broad revelatory event and then thus what it means for Paul to say such a thing. Yeah. Well, I think it's important for us to remember that when uh, Paul talks about the cross, he describes what Christ did in, in, in very explicit terms as an act of love, mm. both divine love and Christ's own love. Um, he gave him, uh, Christ loved me and gave himself up for me, Galatians 2, or God demonstrates love for us and that Christ died for us while we were ungodly, Romans 5. So um, this, this act is an, as a manifestation of, of Christ's love, of God's love. So um, again, to go back to the, the, the idea that an, a revelation reveals not only some kind of idea, but it re reveals a reality, reveals what is the character of the, of the revealer. So it's a self-revelation. So we learn from this event of the cross that God is love, and we could even say perhaps that Christ is love, even though Paul doesn't use it, that kind of ontological language. So... Um, Everybody knows that the cross tells us something or reveals something about Christ. But what about God? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the power and wisdom of God are found in Christ crucified. Those are essential Jewish understanding of, of divine attributes. Mm. Well, acts reveal character, whether in humans or in God. There's this inseparable connection between our ourselves and our activities in the world. And that's absolutely uh, the case for God. As a matter of fact, I would argue along with lots of good theologians that when we see God's activity in the world, we are understanding what God is like. So anyhow, so uh, if we translate the phrases that are sometimes translated faith in Christ as faith of Christ, and especially Galatians 2 and Philippians 3 and Romans 3, we see also that that the cross of Christ reveals Christ's faithfulness, God's faithfulness to God, God's uh, Christ's obedience to God. And, and I think here it's very useful to, to think about the cross as having a, 
um, literally a vertical and a horizontal dimension, if we think spatially about that for a moment, that Christ's cross reveals his love for humanity and his faithfulness to God, what I call the kind of quintessential covenantal responsibilities. Well, when we start, when we start talking about that uh, in that way, that the cross reveals Christ, it also reveals God's attributes of, of power and wisdom. Christ crucified is the power and the wisdom of God. We're, we're now getting to see that the cross is revelatory both of Christ and of God. And if that's the case, and if we believe that Christ calls us and through Paul's words, and of course through the gospels, to participate in his reality and to become like him, that uh, Christ shows us what it means not only to be God, but what it means to be human. If that's the case then, when, when we see in Christ this quintessential act of faithfulness to God and love to others, fulfilling the covenantal responsibilities of loving God and neighbor. That's what it means to be human. So on the cross, Jesus reveals himself. He reveals what it means to be God and what it means, therefore, also to be human. Very interesting in, in um, Philippians, though he was in the form of God, so he did not count this equality with God as a thing to be grasped or to be to be exploited for his own good, his own advantage. Um, I've argued in the book and, and suggested in the book and argued in more depth elsewhere that we should translate that phrase because he was in the form of God. So that's what it means. What's what it means to be like God or what it means to be God, which is to be loved, to be self-giving love, self-emptying love. Mm. And, Jesus then is, is revealing, we see similar texts in, in Corinthians, um, often translated, although he was rich, he became poor. Well, John Barclay and I have argued that that should also be translated because he was rich, he became poor. Mm. So at the end of the day, let me, let, me just, let me summarize this a little bit. At the end of the day, if Christ reveals both God and humanity, what it means to be truly God and to be truly human. That's an interesting take on the Chalcedonian formula. Mm. Uh, and, and we could say in a nutshell that cruciformity is, is theoformity. To be like Christ is to be like God and there ultimately to be fully human. So at the end of the day, this, this blows people's minds, but I think it's true. Divinization, becoming like God, is ultimately humanization. Mm. Um, I'm not sure I have that sentence in the book, but I have that thought in the book. Yeah, yeah. No, that's helpful. Thank you. Um, it's interesting to think about the way you're, you're kind of developing, <clears throat> pardon me, um, you know, your ideas of theosis and participation in that you develop them very much in a, in a narrative sense, that Paul has this kind of narrative that we then embody and, and live out and become. Uh, now, does this differ from the way, I guess, theosis might have been talked about uh, before the kind of more recent coupling with with Paul and mission and participation, where it's, it's less of a metaphysical or ontological uh, mm. category, a more a narrative one. How, how do you see your work sitting with that? Yeah. Well, of course, a lot of people, especially in the Protestant tradition, don't have a clue what theosis is. Mm-hmm. So that means we, just to start there, the idea that there's a process of participating in the life of God that leads us to ultimate glorification, where in the process we begin 
to share in God's character and eventually in God's immortality. Um, that runs throughout the Christian tradition with a lot of variation, whether it's at Augustine or even Calvin and Luther, but particularly in the Eastern Orthodoxy. And more recently, in even, even evangelical Protestantism, there's been work in that area. Uh, but I think you're right. It's often, especially in the Eastern tradition, be seen, been seen as a kind of ontological and uh, primarily um, uh, almost philosophical, metaphysical reality. But it seems to me by its very nature, uh, as a process, it, 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 it lends itself to being described and, and um, understood in narrative terms. So that Paul comes to the rescue by speaking as he does in this uh, narrative that, that of, of self-emptying that we see in, in Christ that then became, becomes the paradigm of, of the Christian life for the ones who inhabit and are inhabited by this, this self-giving uh, savior. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's still a lot of work to be done. Uh, as, as I say in, in the book, I, I'm more concerned about the concept of transformative participation than I am about the language. And I don't want to turn theosis into another dogma or a doctrine, but see it more as a helpful theme that has, a, like I said, a, a number of variations. Mm, yeah, thanks for that. I think that's helpful. Uh, you mentioned at the outset that in this uh, book, without leaving the cross behind, you're also wanting to um, open up and explore what it means to think about the resurrection and participation and, and what it is to be co-resurrection. No. Um, and one interesting part of that conversation is how you explore how this shapes our thinking of justification. Uh, and again, maybe a tool to maybe help open up or a theme to help open up some of our language of justification. Mm. Can, you, can you talk to us a little bit about how looking at participation and resurrection, uh, yeah, shapes that justification discussion? Yeah, yeah. Well, for many Christians who even think about the language of justification, it means primarily getting right with God, either in a kind of legal sense, the judge has forgiven or uh, acquitted people. Um, it's often associated with forgiveness and, and seen as a relatively narrow term. Even in, in scholarly discussions of justification, it's often seen as um, a declaration either of acquittal or in the case of the new perspective, a declaration of membership in, in the new covenant community. So what I, what I try to do is do a close reading of justification texts in Paul and show how closely those texts are related to bigger issues, especially issues of life. Um, the, the life of the, of the risen Christ is uh, available to those who believe, who, who receive the gospel, that the gift of the Spirit happens in that moment or beginning of justification. And so uh, because justification for Paul, I think, is very participatory in, in Galatians 2 especially, uh, it, it's portrayed there as a dying and rising experience. So if we think of justification as not only an acquittal, which it is, but as, as a as a... Um, transformative reality that takes an old way of life and kills it and initiates a new way of life that participates in this resurrected one. Uh, then we begin to see in other places in Paul where, in fact, 
life and justification are in the same passage. And, and we tend to eliminate the life part and just see the justification language. So for instance, Romans 5, 12 and following, the contrast between Adam and Paul, sorry, Adam and Christ, is a contrast not only of condemnation and acquittal, but a, a, a contrast of death and life. Or if we go to the story of Abraham in, in, in chapter 4, many people see that and they latch on to the, you know, Abraham couldn't earn his justification because it was by grace and not by works. But if we keep reading in the rest of the chapter, we see that Abraham and his wife Sarah were, were dead. And they came to life by the gift of this son. And it's a death in life uh, reality going on there too. So there's, there's so much about justification that has to do with new life. And we don't want to minimize it and think of it simply as the pronouncement of acquittal. But it's, it's the beginning of, of this new life. Mm, thank you for that. Uh, in, our, in our previous interview, we talked about what Paul might um, and John might talk about if they were talking about their uh, union with Christ or participation with Christ's language. Mm. Uh, I want to ask if Paul was sitting down with the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, say Matthew, um, and if they were kind of considering, it would, um, you know, I'm thinking of Matthew 25, where Christ is seen as, uh, you know, in the least of these. Uh, and so I'm thinking about like, you know, Paul's union language, like, you know, maybe his 2 Corinthians 5 language or just his union language at large and Matthew's, um, you know, parable in, in Matthew 25. Would Matthew be like, Paul, you're getting it all wrong. You flipped it. It's not us in Christ. It's Christ in the person we meet and, and we then tend to that Christ's disciples. Or are they like, oh, we're talking about different things uh, entirely. Everyone's good and groovy. Uh, go on your way. What? <laughs> What might that discussion be? Do you, do you, uh, yeah, is there a relationship? Is it just different? Uh, is there a conflict? What, what is That's got to be one of the most interesting questions about uh, the New Testament I've ever heard, Liam. So congratulations. <laughs> ah, well, I think the basic answer would be we're talking about two different but not unrelated things. Mm. And so... I think Paul is very interested in the reality that Christ living in us um, allows us to treat others in ways that we normally wouldn't do. And to see even in the enemy a neighbor. Um, it's very interesting throughout Paul's letters, five or six times he says things like, practice peace with one another and with all. Um, uh, do good, especially to the brethren and to all, or to the brothers and sisters and to all, that, that kind of language. And so I think Paul has, a, in a sense, a similar understanding that there's something special about the other individual and the others, uh, especially the, the, the needy, whether in the community or outside the community. And of course, there's debate about how Matthew intended that, and it may, intention may be irrelevant. We read it for anybody who's who's um, in prison or anybody who's sick or whatever. So I, I don't think Paul would posit that everybody has a kind of uh, Christ living within them or something that, that seems to be the way Matthew might be interpreted. But I think they would be on the same page in terms of the kind of care that's needed um, because uh, of the presence of Christ somewhere in that equation. Mm. 
Thank you for that. That's that's good. Um, in the last part of the book, uh, you pen a letter to the churches uh, found in North America, uh, a letter, I guess, written by Paul via Gorman, um, you know, t- taking on <clears throat> as if partly what Paul would do. What, what would lay behind, I guess, your desire to put something like that in the book and, and what was it like, I guess, attempting to write that kind of a discourse compared to the essays uh, elsewhere in the book? Yeah. Um, that... That chapter started as uh, a presentation for a fairly lay audience in a in a in a conference that had an academic component and a and a non-academic component. That was part of the non-academic component uh, of the of the conference, and it, it was really well received. Mm. So I. Um, I tried it in a couple of other forms and other in other contexts, and decided that this this would be an interesting way to um, take the the more dense theological language of the first whatever it is eleven chapters of the book, and and get down to some nitty gritty. And I've done that now in uh, um, in a couple of other settings, and it was taken and put in the Christian Century, which is a U.S. magazine. Um, back in August, that that whole chapter was was put in there um, without ever consulting me. They made arrangements with the publisher. The publisher didn't tell me, and there it was. I opened the magazine, and I'm I'm there. And um, it's gotten some interesting feedback. I've, some churches have asked me to Skype with them, interview with them. Uh, mm. Some other churches have told me they're using it for discussion groups. So it's actually done more than I thought it would do. I thought it would just be a chapter in the book, but it's, it's, it's gone beyond that. But the, the, there's, a, there's a little bit of a backstory there, and that is that Martin Luther King actually wrote a similar letter. It was in the form of a sermon or a sermon in the form of a letter to American Christians that he uh, preached, I think, about 15 times in the late 50s and maybe into the early 60s. I actually wrote an essay about this, which I haven't yet published, but I don't remember all the details. And, um, but I found out about that. I knew about that. And so I kind of imitated him. Mm. Uh, he was dealing mostly with American uh, racism and so forth. This was a little bit broader, but I, it was fun to write, I have to mm. say. <laughs> and it's, it's been fun to, to re-give and to give in different forms and to talk with people about it. It seems to have struck a chord both in terms of form and content. Yeah, and it is. It really works well in the book as, as a kind of a, a summing up and a, or, you know, a, just a delivering in a slightly different tone. It's It's got some humour and and, and, and it's, it really um, plays very well. I guess I was going to ask you, and maybe you might be thinking this because you're already engaging with a lot of people reading this. A lot of times, you know, we know from Paul that he would write a letter and then a bunch of letters would come and you have to write another letter to clarify some things and, and, take some, and, right, right. and write some things a bit further. Uh, what would the... Uh, the mashup to, um, second letter uh, to the North American uh, church. What, what do you think might, have you sensed anything from the, the feedback of, oh, actually I need to, uh, this would need, now need to be addressed or um, I, wasn't, yeah. I didn't get time for this last time. So now I need to talk about this. Yeah. It's been more about pushback. Um, one, one respondent in the Christian century uh, said, well, that's great position of power gets to speak to the rest of us. I mean, so there's this kind of accusation that I have privilege and power by virtue of my uh, teaching in a seminary and university context or being a white male in the United States. I'm not sure. It wasn't specific. So 
And it made me feel a little bit like Paul getting criticisms for, for uh, his letters and, and some of his positions. And then the other was interesting pushback. Um, I, I, I quote in that letter, um, one of my favorite lines from C.S. Lewis, which has got militaristic language in it, that, that, that what we see in the gospel is God's sort of benign invasion or incursion into, uh, into um, a, a world in rebellion and a world that's uh, been overtaken by enemy forces or something like, I don't remember the exact language. That, that raised some concerns among uh, a few people. So I guess my next letter would be maybe a, uh, somewhat of a self-defense on the one hand and a defense of the propriety from a pacifist of, of martial language, of military language, because we, we find that in, in other parts of the Pauline correspondence as well. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know about a, a, a next letter. I, I feel like maybe I've exhausted that genre for now. <laughs> Yeah. That's fair, yeah. It's like when someone writes a really hit song or something like that, yeah. like, or a great movie, and everyone's like, what's right. the sequel? It's like, maybe the yeah. one was good. The sequel is always worse than the yeah. first, right? Yeah, yeah almost yeah. always. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One final uh, question <clears throat> is just that, you know, you're obviously very passionate about the this participation language, you know, and its vitality for mission, its vitality for Christian spirituality, for reading Paul and, and considering justification, I guess if you were to like kind of summarize in one small way for, for people who are preaching uh, or, or teaching in various Christian settings, what is that, 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 that value and benefit of taking seriously participation, looking for it in the text that you're exegeting and, and bringing it to life? What's the good news that's found in drawing this participation out in a, in a worshiping community? Yeah, good, good question. Well, I think the first thing is it's simply, it is there. We need we do need to look for it, but it, don't, don't have to look very hard on Paul. He's got 270, no, 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 wrong. Uh, I'm thinking of a different word. Uh, a, a good hundred quotations that have in Christ or in the Lord type language. So it's there. You need to take it seriously. But I think the benefit of participatory language is Christian life otherwise becomes either uh and I, an ideal of imitating Jesus, and that usually gets pretty narrowly construed. We pick the parts of Jesus we want to imitate. It's not, it's not all bad, but it's different from participation. Or it becomes uh, following certain kinds of rules or principles. And the notion of participation makes it clear that our life, day by day, moment by no- moment, is one of, of communion, of fellowship, of of being in a relationship that, uh, that is like the air we breathe. That's um, some of the early interpreters of early by that I mean 19th and 20th early late 19th early 20th centuries interpreters of Paul understood this relationship as of one of uh, being like the air. The air that we breathe is the air is inside us and we are inside it. It surrounds us, and to 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 think day by day of that being the reality of our relationship with Christ and with the spirit, I think not only is enlivens us, but it also allows us to, um, to reflect on the, the fundamental narrative of what it is that, that um, Paul says Christ's story was and allows us to discern moment by moment, day by day, how do I, how do I allow the spirit, how do I allow the spirit of Christ to continue that same life in me and in my community? That seems to me to be the really, fundamental question of Christian spirituality from a participatory 
perspective. Oh, thank you for that. Uh, the book is Participating in Christ, Exploration in Paul's Theology and Spirituality, out now with Baker Academic. <laughs> I just realized now I'm holding this up as if it was a video interview. <laughs> it's just with the podcast. But imagine I'm holding up a book, folks. Imagine I'm holding up a book at home. Uh, it's an excellent book. I encourage everyone to pick it up. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's really readable. It unpacks you know, so many huge concepts in Paul um, in a way that is, as Michael was pointing out, life-giving and exciting and, and helpful in uh, helping us form not only our spirituality but our, our Christian ethics. So, uh, Michael Gorman, thank you for writing the book and thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Liam. It's been a great pleasure. No worries. <laughs>